0: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This
1: week, the brain is the equivalent of a locked room, but this hasn't stopped scientists looking for the keys.
2: We did not know what are the gates in. And what are the gates out?
3: And the mystery of Greenland's disappearing lakes.
4: There were small micro-fractures opening up all throughout camp.
1: Plus, the latest in CRISPR gene editing, as well as the Italian scientists being investigated by the police. This is The Nature Podcast for June the 2nd, 2015. I'm Adam Levy.
3: And I'm Kerry Smith. Who knows why, but some ideas just become overnight successes. Cat videos on the internet learning the Gangnam-style dance.
0: Well,
3: in biology right now, there's only one trend worth talking about. CRISPR. CRISPR is a genome editing technique that emerged only a couple of years ago. And it's exploding. One of the pioneers of the technique is Jennifer Doudna. She keeps a list of every organism that scientists have crisped so far.
0: I think we're up to a few dozen. Um, You know, it's covering a range of Uh, animals, fungi, plants, of course, Um, also uh, various kinds of um, organisms that traditionally have not been tractable uh, genetically.
3: CRISPR allows geneticists to edit the genome as they might edit a piece of text, snipping just where they want. It's actually a system stolen from bacteria, who use it to snip up and neutralise viruses.
0: Well, my lab's actually been working on CRISPR systems for about 10 years, believe it or not. We've been trying to understand how bacteria use little RNA molecules together with proteins to fight off viral infections.
3: The bacterial armory is a piece of RNA that specifies the sequence to be edited and a protein that actually does the snipping.
0: And it's that uh, finding that led to the creation of the technology for genome engineering that people are using quite widely now.
3: Quite widely is an understatement. The number of research papers mentioning CRISPR has at least tripled in the past two years. It's not like scientists haven't had any ways of editing the genome before. But CRISPR is cheaper, it's easier to do, and it's enabling experiments that older methods just couldn't touch. Robin Lovell-Badge at the UK Medical Research Council's lab in Mill Hill is interested in the genetics of sex determination. Over the years, he's tried all the
5: traditional techniques. Uh, The techniques never worked, and it turns out that, that some reasons of the genome are... Uh, rather refractory to those those traditional methods and actually the Y chromosome was very, it was basically pretty much impossible to target using conventional means. Then CRISPR came along and it just seemed um, far more efficient and so we tried using CRISPR techniques and, and indeed worked first time.
3: His reaction to CRISPR was like many other biologists who've been trying it on for size.
5: Well, it was, you know, it was sort of amazement, and then, um, you know, people got very excited because it meant that they could contemplate doing things which uh, were actually very, well, either not just difficult, but very, um, to such a long time using more conventional methods. So, to give a, you know, for example, to give a PhD student a project to make a, um, a particular type of mutation in, in mice. Uh, you'd have to think very carefully about doing that because it would take a year or so to get your animals. Whereas using the direct um, injection into zygotes method, you can get your animals uh, pretty much straight away.
0: Jennifer
3: Doudna calls CRISPR a democratizing technique.
0: It's important to appreciate how how uh, how easy it really is to do these experiments, and I think that um, that this does mean that we have to we as a community have to be thinking hard about uh, the way to ensure appropriate use of this technology and also its, its safe application.
3: Just like regulating democracy, regulating CRISPR will need careful thought. Here's Lovell-Badge again.
5: The sorts of change you, you can make with these are can look almost identical to a naturally occurring mutation. Um, it's going to be actually very difficult to to regulate, so you, you couldn't necessarily label it as being genetically modified if you, you can't tell it's being genetically modified.
3: Lots of groups have already made tweaks that look just like natural variation. Take Vladimir Niekrasov, whose group at the Sainsbury Plant Sciences Lab in Norwich in the UK is working to make tomatoes that are resistant to a fungus called powdery mildew.
6: Our product is essentially a non-transgenic line that carries a deletion, a small deletion in the locus of interest and essentially this plant is a non-GM, indistinguishable from uh, natural varieties that, carry, uh, that would carry a mutation in the same locus.
3: In Europe, Niekrasov says, these plants are still regulated like GM crops.
6: Simply because if a variety has been generated using uh, any kind of recombinant nucleic acid is classified as GM in Europe. However, in the United States, the situation is different. So there, the legislation takes into account not so much the uh, the process, but rather the product. So if the product is a, is a variety that doesn't carry any foreign DNA, then it would be classified as non-GM.
3: Regulation aside, Biologists are excited about the time-saving that CRISPR is allowing. Breeding a new strain of plant, or using older gene-editing techniques to make one, is time-consuming. Nyakrasov's new CRISPR tomato strain took only nine months to make. It might not be too long then before CRISPRed crops hit gardens and greenhouses. For now, though, the biggest hits are likely to be in basic science.
0: To see the kind of biology that's being enabled by by this is is, uh, just uh, kind of jaw-dropping to me.
3: That was Jennifer Dowdner of UC Berkeley and before her, Robin Lovell-Badge and Vladimir Nyekrasov here in the UK.
1: At its thickest point, the Greenland ice sheet is over a mile deep. In fact, it's so vast that in the warm season, meltwater can form large lakes on the surface. These lakes can be several kilometres wide, but sometimes they just disappear. They can empty in just a few hours with the water rushing away at immense speeds. But how the lakes are draining their water to the bottom of the ice sheet has remained a mystery. It's not just baffling, it's also worrying. When the water from these lakes reaches the bottom of the ice sheets, it speeds up the flow of the ice into the ocean. As the world warms, more of these lakes will form, and so researchers are keen to understand how this will affect Greenland's ice loss. Now, researchers think they've worked out what's happening to all this water. One of the team members, Laura Stevens, originally from the southern state of Kentucky and now based at MIT, has been spending her summers in a very different climate. I gave her a ring and asked her what it's like working in the Arctic Circle.
4: It's a very vibrant place, but the ice sheet is an incredible otherworldly place. Working on ice is interesting because the whole time you're thinking, "Okay, the ice is moving, there are crevasses and mulans that are taking water down. Even though the ice overall moves very slow, it's a very active place in the summertime.
1: The Greenland ice sheet is so vast that these lakes can form on the surface. How big can these lakes actually grow to be?
4: These lakes can get pretty big. The lakes, on average, are about 4,000 Olympic swimming pools sized.
1: You were investigating a way these lakes can disappear really very quickly, weren't you?
4: What we're focused on in this paper which is these dramatic rapid drainage events where a crack intersects the lake margin and the lake fills that crevasse and the force of the water drives the fracture down through the ice. It's called a hydrofracture. So water rushes into the hydrofracture, draining the lake in a couple hours, roughly at the speed of water flowing over Niagara Falls.
1: What's it like to witness one of these drainage events where this huge lake drains over the course of just a few hours?
4: In 2008, collaborators were camped out by North Lake when it drained. They were um, able to hear lots of large booms and there were small micro-fractures, maybe about a millimetre in thickness, opening up all throughout camp.
1: Could understanding lake drainages help us to understand the rate at which Greenland will contribute to sea level rise?
4: So right now we understand that when lakes drain, a large amount of water reaches the ice sheet bed and water spreads out as a sheet at the bed of the ice sheet, which causes less of the ice sheet bed to be in contact with the bedrock. So if you have less of the ice sheet bed in contact with the bedrock below there's a greater amount of ice sheet that's able to slip on this interface of water that's now down there. And the ice in that area speeds up, increasing the amount of total ice on the ice sheet moving towards the coast and increasing the amount of icebergs discharging into the ocean.
1: What do we currently know about what causes these lakes to drain so suddenly? It seems like such a huge event.
4: Before the glaciology community had a sense of, OK, we need enough water in lakes to be able to fill up the hydrofracture that forms. But we were noticing that there are lakes that form that have a volume five times as much as the volume needed to fill hydrofracture crack. And some of these lakes aren't draining over the summer.
1: How did you set about investigating what was actually causing these rapid drainage events?
4: We set up 16 GPS stations around a lake on the Greenland Ice Sheet for three years. We specifically wanted a high spatial resolution of GPS stations because we're interested in understanding how hydrofractures are triggered, where the event starts, and what the ice is doing all around the ice sheet before the drainage occurs. What we were able to show with our data from North Lake is that a significant amount of water reaches the ice sheet bed before the hydrofracture crack begins to open. As the water reaches the bed, it causes two things. First, it causes the ice sheet to slip. Second, it causes the ice sheet to be uplifted a little bit. You can think of this as a small dome forming on the ice sheet surface, and it's stretching that surface ice. This stretching causes fractures to begin forming, and once a fracture intersects the lake basin, water from the lake drives that fracture open and the lake drains rapidly.
1: So does this help you predict which lakes will drain in the future?
4: Yeah, so our results help us understand that while there are additional lakes forming at upper elevations of the ice sheet, and this region is is expanding inland every year, it's unlikely that the water in these lakes Will be transferred to the bed directly beneath the lakes at the upper elevations because there aren't a lot of crevasses near these upper elevation lakes that prevents water getting to the bed locally beneath these lakes and instigating this precursor to hydrofracture
1: does this now solve the mystery of sudden lake drainage or are there still big unanswered questions i
4: think this largely solves the questions we had about how um, the water is being drained from the lake so quickly. One interesting question that we'll be able to tackle next with this data set is how the ice responds weeks to months after a lake drainage event, not just in the in the couple of days around the event.
1: That was Laura Stevens getting to the bottom of the Greenland ice sheet, figuratively speaking. Check out the full paper over at nature.com forward slash nature.
3: Coming up, another mystery in the form of the brain's central nervous system, plus how diseased olives are getting Italian scientists into trouble.
1: But first, Shamini Bandel joins us for this week's research highlights.
7: Two new islands have popped up in the Red Sea. One appeared in 2011, the second in 2013, and their birth hints that that area may be more geologically active than previously thought. Now, seismic data and satellite measurements reveal that the two islands formed from magma squirting up from the sea floor. Magma's leaking from a rift in the Earth's crust caused by two tectonic plates shifting away from each other. New islands like these are rare and provide a great opportunity to study the submarine eruptions that cause them. For more on these islands, see Nature Communications. Pluto and its moons have a pretty dysfunctional relationship. Its biggest moon is Charon, and Pluto and Charon together form a binary planet-like system. But there are four other moons – Styx, Nix, Kerberos and Hydra. New research shows that Nix and Hydra are rotating chaotically due to the large torques from the other bodies. And it also looks like Kerberos is much darker than the other moons, raising questions about its origins. The New Horizons spacecraft will fly by Pluto in July and is hoping to find out more about this complex family we may find that Pluto's hiding even more moons. The full paper is in Nature this week.
3: You'd have to be the molecular equivalent of Houdini to get in or out of the brain. The central nervous system is like a locked box in the midst of a bustling marketplace. A membrane protects the brain from the seething mass of pathogens, detritus and immune molecules in the rest of the body. But when, say, a virus does make it into the brain, it needs to be drained out of the tissue and hauled in front of the immune system for dispatch by helpful immune cells. The immune system can then wage war on any invading particles. Scientists know how ordinary organs flush out nasty infections via lymphatic vessels, gateways out of tissues that act like blood vessels for the immune system. But how this drainage occurs from the central nervous system has been a bit of a mystery, because it's a commonly known fact that the central nervous system doesn't have any lymphatic vessels. Well, that was a fact until Jonathan Kipnis from the University of Virginia and his team found some, in the central nervous system, where they weren't supposed to be. Jeff Marsh called Jonathan and his team member Antoine Louvo.
2: So one of the main differences between the central nervous system and the rest of the body is that it's a so-called immune-privileged organ. There are other immune-privileged organs, for example, the eye, the testes, the ovaries. And the immune-privileged means that immune responses in the brain are restricted but there is a surveillance by the peripheral immune system and those immune cells are not getting inside the meat of the brain they are sitting more on the borders so if you think about your brain between the brain and the skull there is a region called the meninges which is composed of three layers and in those layers we have a lot of immune activity and these cells are getting in and getting out and are constantly surveying the brain through those meningeal spaces but we did not know what are the gates in and what are the gates out.
8: Now, in the rest of the body, uh, these gateways,
2: that's done by something called the lymphatic
8: system. What is that?
2: Yes, so in the rest of the body, the cells get into the tissues through the blood vessels, and they go out through the lymphatic vessels. And then they are being taken out into the draining lymph nodes, into the regional lymph nodes. And one of the things about central nervous system is that the consensus was that there is no lymphatic vessels in the CNS.
8: Right, okay, and you have smashed this dogma by finding lymph vessels across the central nervous system in a mouse. I believe you're joined by your first author, Antoine. Hello, Antoine. Hi. Tell me then about the experiment. How did you find these uh, these new vessels? We developed a way of visualizing that area that's surrounding the brain
9: that is called the meninges, and that's how we ended up finding those vessels.
8: must have been a big surprise to you when you got back your your stained samples.
9: Yes. At first, we did those uh, staining for marker for those vessels just as some kind of a control because the textbook says that they are not supposed to be there. So we just did it as a way of saying, yeah, we'll confirm that there's nothing there. And it turns out that there was something there. Did you believe the results at first? We first were very surprised and very excited, and then we realized that this was a big change compared to what we knew already. So we started saying, let's calm down and characterize them
8: more before we can really get excited and realize that this this was real. Do they look and and function like classic lymphatic vessels?
9: Yes, so we did a comparison with... uh, the diaphragm lymphatic which is localized in in another part of the body and it turns out that except that they are less developed than the one you can find in the rest of the body, they share the very common characteristic with the normally
8: known lymphatic vessel outside of the brain. Back to you now Jonathan, what implications does this have for immune diseases of
2: the brain? That's a great question, so now we have to ask, well the brain is still an immune privileged organ, even though we have lymphatics, lymphatic vessels. So we do have drainage. We do have proteins and cells can get out of the brain into the periphery and being seen by the and be seen by the immune system, peripheral immune system. Yet the brain is unique and it and it has its property of of, of immune privileged organ. So are lymphatics contributing to this to these properties? Could be that they are failing in conditions like multiple sclerosis, and that's why we have inflammation and attack on the brain. Could it be that the big aggregates of proteins, such as in Alzheimer's, are actually being taken out through the lymphatic vessels, but if they are not functioning, then these aggregates accumulate in the brain? Could it be that through the if, if, if the lymphatic vessels are not efficient, then the brain tumors would develop because the immune response won't be called in? Why
8: do you think that these vessels hadn't been found up until now? It seems like a bit of a surprise because they
2: are very well hidden and I think we were only able to discover those vessels because Antoine developed this whole mount technique so we were able to mount the entire meninges on a slide and then it became obvious to us that there is some vessel that are carrying immune cells which are not part of the vasculature of the blood vasculature.
8: And just to be clear this work was all done in mice are you assuming that this
2: is, this, this is a parallel situation in humans? So we actually published one of our figures demonstrates an example from a human area of the meninges where we're showing structures that look like possible also lymphatic vessels. But I don't think we are, at this point, very well convinced. I think there is more work to be done, and we now collaborate with more clinicians, and we're getting fresh samples from this area of the brain. And hopefully in the very near future, we will better describe human
1: vessels.
3: That was Jonathan Kipnis and before him Antoine Louvo from the University of Virginia. For the full paper, head on down to nature.com slash nature.
1: Time for our news chat now, and Alison Abbott is on the line from Munich. Alison, the olive's having a bit of a tough time in Italy at the moment, isn't it?
10: Yes, there's an endemic of a a new strain of Xylella, a bacterium that's um, endemic in North, Central and Southern America, but previously unknown in Europe has invaded European shores via the region of Puglia in the south tip of Italy. Olives, of course, are extremely important to the, the region, economically certainly. It's one of the largest olive producers in Italy. But there's also a cultural and historical aspect to it. The olive trees have been growing there for hundreds of years, and so people have a, an attachment for their olive groves that goes far and away beyond what a normal farmer might have.
1: So has there been any research to indicate how this crisis could be curtailed?
10: Right now, if a tree is infected, it can't be cured and it can't be contained. We know that uh, the bacterium is spread by an insect called the spittlebug, maybe also other insects. So the, the eradication procedure in southern Italy is to fell... The trees and spray the insects north of the containment area, there's much more stringent regulations happening. Those trees will be eliminated within hundred meters of every sick tree.
1: What's the public reaction been to the scientific response to the pathogen?
10: Well, the, the public reaction has first of all um, been against the containment measures because the farmers, they don't understand why such draconian measures are needed to chop down healthy trees. And the spotlight has turned on the scientists and they've come under a lot of pressure to take, almost to take the blame for this. So conspiracy theories abound um, that involve, for example, scientists being themselves responsible for the uh, bacterium leaking into the environment and um, infecting a naive continent. And now, worst of all, it's um, become apparent that the police are investigating the scientists for these possible crimes.
1: Is there much evidence that exists to support these accusations that you're aware of?
10: So far, there's no evidence that we're aware of. But all of the evidence uh, that has been thrown out there has been so far debunked. For example, uh, one of the main concerns of the prosecutors at the beginning, when they started their investigation, concerned uh, a workshop that had been held about Zilella. And I think the police thought it was rather suspicious, because Zilella did officially not exist in Europe, so why look at it? But of course this was um, a training course, a European-wide training course, so there's every reason that this should be should have taken place. Also the Xylella strains that were bought from America for this workshop were not actually the strains that are circulating in Puglia. So this sort of quite clearly was not the source of the leak.
1: It seems that when something has such an emotional weight to it, there are always going to be conspiracy theories around that issue. Why do you think it's kind of gone to this next level and being looked at by the police?
10: It wouldn't be the first time that the police had picked up conspiracy theories and taken them to a level that probably they would have been filtered out in other countries. We've seen this also after the earthquake in L'Aquila, where the scientists who were supposed to predict um, earthquakes, of course you can't predict earthquakes, they were actually blamed for that earthquake happening. And there's, there's also other cases where the government has actually ignored uh, the science advice that is actually set up to support a stem cell trial, which really tricked very, very sick patients, most of them children, into believing that um, a charlatan method of stem cell brew could cure you of your deadly disease. And there's many other cases where politicians have really taken automatically the side of the campaigners as if Opinion and scientific fact were things that could be equally weighted.
1: Do you think there's anything that scientists in Italy can do to avoid this kind of case in the future?
10: I think the government of Italy needs to take a stronger stance on scientific advice and make sure that the, the country understands that policy involves scientific input.
1: How have these cases affected the scientific community?
10: Well, of course, for the scientific community, it's very crushing to have these cases happen time and time again.
1: Does this mean that there's a risk that scientists will be overcautious in the future?
10: No. I think scientists in Italy are like scientists everywhere. They stick to the scientific method. They, they stick to what they know is right.
1: Thanks, Alison. To find out more about the fate of the Italian olive tree, as well as of the Italian scientists, head to nature.com forward slash news.
3: That's all from us this week. Tune in next time for more Science Mysteries Solved. I'm Kerry Smith.
1: And I'm Adam Levy.
3: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European Linen.